maybe your grandma and your grandpa, had sort of go-to phrases that they said all the time, right? And when you were a kid, you knew those phrases, and you probably rolled your eyes at those phrases. And you probably said things like, when I grow up, I am never going to say that to my kids or my grandkids. That is so stupid. And then you grow up and you have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or you work in the church nursery or whatever. And you, they just come out of your mouth, right? You don't even think about it. It just comes out. And the first time it comes out, you're like, oh, my goodness. I can't believe I just said that. I used that phrase. Or maybe what happens at our house a lot is not that one of us catches ourselves, but that Brooke or I catch the other one. And we're like, yeah, your mom says that. <laughs> or she'll look at me, you're, that, that's Bill. That's your dad. And uh, we sort of laugh at that. So just keep count. I'm going to give you some of these go-to phrases, okay? Keep count, just with your hands, tally marks, whatever you want to do. How many of these you have used as an adult, whether as a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or church nursery, VBS, whatever, okay? Um, How many of these have you used? Number one, who's the parent here? Some of you have used that when you're giggling. I bet some of you have used this one. Money doesn't grow on trees. Yeah, there you go. Yes, you need clean underwear every day. Do you want some cheese with that wine? That's a classic. You say that to your kids, they're like, that is so dumb. Just wait, they're going to say it too. If you don't pick up your toys, I'm going to throw them away. No, you're not. No, you're not. You paid good money for them at Christmas. You're not going to throw them away. Go ask your mom. Go ask your dad. God gave you a brain. Why don't you use it? That's helpful. Thank you. Maybe the worst of the whole list. If your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? Are your legs broken? If you're not bleeding, stay outside. Were you raised by wolves? I used that one within the last week, and it came out, and I just rolled my eyes at myself. That is so, you were raised by me. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. Mm, Scary. Wipe that look off your face. Stop, I like this one. Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. (laughs) Don't use that tone with me, mister. Were you raised in a barn? I asked that to a kid one time in Oklahoma, and he was raised on a farm, and he looked at me and said, yep. (laughs) Don't make me turn this car around. I don't know what that means. I haven't said this one yet, but I won't swear it off completely. Some of you have kids older than my kids. I hope when you grow up, your kids are just like you. (laughs) Anybody get over a dozen? A few of you. I don't remember my mom. I remember my dad using a lot of those kinds of phrases. I don't remember my mom using a ton of those. Um, My mom had one go-to phrase growing up, and her go-to phrase was, it's a dangerous world out there. And so there's a picture of my mom. She's holding my niece, Maddox, and... Um, that was just the latest picture I could find of, of my mom on Facebook. 
I think she started saying this when I was uh, old enough to ride my bike to school in the mornings and things like that. Our house was probably uh, almost a mile away from the school, and so growing up in elementary school, we rode our bikes all the time, and as we got older, we rode all over Amarillo, and every time I left the house, every single time, she would stop me, and that would be the last thing she always said to me. It's a dangerous world out there. She said it when I was in high school um, and got my driver's license. She said it to me when I was in college. I lived all of 15 miles away in Canyon, and they were in Amarillo, and I would uh, I worked at the church she worked at, so I saw her every day, and I went to church with her on Sunday mornings because she would do my laundry Sunday afternoon. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, every time I would drive home to Canyon or back to Canyon, uh, that would be the last thing she always said to me. It's a dangerous world out there. And it is a dangerous world out there. It's true. It's a dangerous world. And Brooke and I had an interesting experience Uh, And there's a point to this story, so stay with me. We had an interesting experience when we moved from Kingfisher to Odessa, where we lived in Kingfisher to moving here. So let me just tell you a little bit about Kingfisher. Kingfisher is a town about 30 miles northwest of Oklahoma City, uh, about 5,000 people or so. It is the richest, it's the county seat in Kingfisher County, and Kingfisher County is the richest county per capita in the state of Oklahoma. So not just like the total richest, but per capita, right? Just a lot of rich people and not a whole lot of poor people in that particular part of the state. A lot of farming money, uh, wheat. They call it the buckle of the wheat belt is kingfisher, and so a lot of farming money, a lot of oil money, uh, a lot of ranching money. It's a very white-collar community. You had some of this, you know, uh, oil farming, ranching money, but you had just an incredible number, for a town of 5,000 people, an incredible number of white-collar professionals. And an interesting thing happened about 10 years ago in Kingfisher. There was a huge flood, and it flooded the oldest part of town. It was in this big flood plain where these two creeks cross, and this part of town just got completely wiped out. FEMA came in and said, this is a flood plain. You can never, they condemned the whole Thing. They said you can never rebuild here. So it's an interesting dynamic. All of the oldest, smallest, least nice houses in town got bulldozed. And they were just gone overnight. And when you drive through that part of town, it's just empty fields. And they can't, you can't use it for anything because FEMA condemned it. And so it just sits there empty. It used to be all these houses there. And all of those people who lost their houses got some money, but they didn't get enough money to afford to buy or build anything else in any other part of Kingfisher, so they, most of them went to other communities. So it was a very interesting situation where you had basically the poorest part of town just get wiped out and never got rebuilt. Uh, so it was a very, very rich community. Um, people would tell you there it's a very safe community. I cannot tell you how many times somebody told me, I'm so glad we don't have all the problems they have in Oklahoma City. I'm so glad our kids don't have to face all the challenges the kids in the city have to face. And there was a mindset, partly true, but partly completely irrational. There's a mindset that here in this community, we are isolated from bad things. We are very, very safe here. Bad things don't happen here. Bad people don't live here. This is a very nice community. And when you drive around, it is very nice. For a town of 5,000 people, they got the best swimming pool and the best golf course and the best hospital and the best everything 
that you can imagine. I mean, it is just very, very nice. And people live with this illusion, we are safe here. When you leave here, it's dangerous. But here, it's safe. And then we moved to Odessa. And everyone in Kingfisher Googled Odessa. And they said, you know, you're moving to the murder capital of Texas. You're moving to the violent crime capital of Texas. You're moving to the burglary capital of Texas. You're moving to the the meth capital of Texas, whatever you want to say. And uh, I think in Odessa, we live with a little bit more awareness that it is dangerous. We know that in Odessa, Texas, right? Most of us in this area work jobs that are dangerous. We have a member in our church uh, who was in an explosion working out in the oil fields. And we say, that that's a dangerous job. I drove down Parkway today, and there was an SUV turned upside down right out in front of UTPB and mess everywhere and people injured and ambulance, and you just drive down the road. And I know sometimes we joke about the traffic here, but when you drive around, you know it's dangerous. And those of you who drive on the, the oil field roads up and down, you know the traffic on those roads is dangerous. And we live with that understanding. And here's the reality. It really doesn't matter if you live in Odessa, Texas, or Kingfisher, Oklahoma, or anywhere in between. It is a dangerous world. The world is a dangerous place. And you might be able to find some spots where there aren't as many traffic accidents. You might be able to find some spots where uh, the, the typical profession is not quite as risky as working in the oil field. Um, you might find some spots where drug use isn't quite as high, but I promise you those kids at Kingfisher High School got into all the same stuff kids get into anywhere else. Whether their parents wanted to admit it or not, uh, it was absolutely no different than all this, the bad schools in the city. It was just the same old stuff. And here's the reality. Every community that you live in, everyone, big, small, Texas, out of Texas, everywhere you go in the world, every community you live in, 100% of the people who live in that community are sinners. Everywhere you go. You've never lived in a city or a community or a neighborhood that was not made up of sinful people. You can't go anywhere now where the internet doesn't reach. And so you may think outwardly we don't have some of these issues, but the internet brings a lot of those issues to you, whether you want them to be there or you don't want them to be there. You can say, you know, I'm tired of all these communities and all the mess of it, and I just want to go live in the wilderness, and I want to get away from it all, and I'm going to get rid of the Internet. I'm going to go off the grid. Some of you have had that thought. Brooke and I have had that thought sometimes. like, wouldn't it just be nice? You see stuff. You worry about your kids, and you say, just to be mountain people, live in the wilderness, and not have to deal with all this. There's a problem with that. You go to the wilderness, and you're there. So there's danger there. You take it with you in your heart. Wherever you go, everywhere you go, and wherever you go, high, low, wilderness, city, anywhere in between, there are spiritual forces of evil that want to destroy you. And so the reality that just needs to settle on us is it is a dangerous world that we live in. And when Jesus tells us, Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. From evil. We're asking for deliverance from something that is dangerous. Right? We need to understand the danger that we're asking to be delivered from. Now, most of us think of, okay, praying about dangerous things. Well, our Kenya team's about to travel 
They're going to drive to Dallas. That's dangerous. They're going to get on a plane and fly all the way around the world. That's dangerous. And then they're going to ride a busted up, jicky old van down a bumpy old road in the middle of nowhere. And that's super dangerous. So we're going to pray for travel mercies. We want to pray for travel mercies. And most of us are, I'm not telling you not to pray for that, by the way. You should pray for that. Most of us are very comfortable praying for that, travel mercies. I want to pray for travel mercies, that I would be safe. We don't have any problem with that. Most of us are comfortable praying about health dangers. Cancer, that's a danger to you. Cancer is dangerous. And if you get it, we're going to pray for you. And most of us are very comfortable. Like when we share prayer requests in our Sunday school classes, a lot of them are health-related. And people get sick or they have you know, this illness, and we, we know there's danger there, and we're going to pray that God would heal those people. We don't, we don't think twice about that. For some reason, we're more comfortable praying about cancer and travel mercies than about the spiritual danger that we face every single day, whether you're healthy or you're sitting in your living room, or you're traveling around the world, or you have cancer, or some combination of all of that, you face spiritual danger every day. And my goal on the front end of this study is to help you and me think through what are those dangers. When we say deliver us from evil, what falls into that category that we need to be delivered from? So let's jump in. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Number one, we got to start with ourselves. Our hearts are plagued by sin. Our hearts are plagued by sin. And I'd like you to take your Bible. We're just going to walk through the Scriptures and think about some of these passages. And we'll move quickly. Genesis 4, verse 7. This is way towards the front end. Genesis 4, 7. The story of Cain and Abel. You're either familiar with it or you can go back and read it. But the Lord is talking to Cain when he's angry that God didn't have regard for his offering. We fill in the details there. There's not a lot of details. God did not regard his offering favorably. That's about all Genesis tells us. Verse 7, God is speaking to Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you or against you, but you must rule over it. And it's the idea that sin, as God is talking to Cain, it's like a wild animal sitting outside the door of your house, and as soon as you crack the door open, it's ready to pounce. Right? Maybe you could think of the, you know, the Chevy commercial where they put the people in the car and they have that camera that looks down on the car somehow and they let the alligators out and the alligators are all around the car, and the people are terrified. No one's getting out of the car, right? Those wild animals are ready to attack as soon as you open the door, and no one dares crack the door. And God is saying to Cain, it's like that. Sin is crouching at your door. It's waiting to destroy you, and you've got to master it, or it's going to destroy you. Flip the page. Look at Genesis 6-5. This is the lead-in to the story of the flood says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a lot of superlative words used in that passage, and it talks about your heart. Not to say sin only affects one part of you, but to say it affects every part of you. All right? 
every intention of all the thoughts of your heart are only evil all the time. That's you and me. That's our hearts apart from God's grace. There's a danger that we face every single day and we carry it around in our chest, in our heart. And it's that we, left to ourselves, are wicked and our wickedness is great and every intention of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. Look at Psalm 51. This is David's prayer of confession after he's sinned with Bathsheba and he's been confronted with his sin and God exposes him. Psalm 51, verse 5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. In some translations, I think the NIV says, I was sinful from birth, from the moment my mother conceived me. Right? It's not that I showed up here pretty good and then I did a lot of bad stuff and became a sinner. It's that I showed up here and I was a sinner and that's why I did a lot of bad stuff. This problem showed up with me. It's native to me as a descendant of Adam. Look at Isaiah 59. Just flip over a few, few books to the right. Isaiah 59. Verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it can't save, or his ear dull that it can't hear. He can save and he can hear. But, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your sin damages your relationship with God. It puts a separation between you and God. And left to ourselves, walking through life as sinners... Isaiah says, it's as if God doesn't hear. It's as if he doesn't see. Right? He's separated from you because of your sin. Your sin has, has put this separation between you and God. That's a dangerous thing, to be out on your own. God not listening. That's how Isaiah describes it. Look at James chapter 1 in the New Testament. We're going to look at James a lot tonight. James chapter 1. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It starts within your heart. That's where temptation starts. The desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's that your passions are at war within you. The reason you fight, the reason you have all these arguments, the reason you can't get along is that your hearts are warped and totally affected and impacted and wrecked by sin. Our hearts are plagued by sin. When you think about temptation... The place to start is not the idea that you've got a good angel on this shoulder and a demon on this shoulder and they're both trying to vie for you and you're like the, the teeter-totter, you're, the, you're the, the fulcrum in the middle of it and it just could go either way. Who's going to have the most convincing argument? The Bible says your heart is completely wrecked by sin. Left to yourself, there is no debate or argument. Right? There's no like good dog and bad dog fighting each other. There's no angel and demon arguing. You're completely on the sinful side. That's where you are naturally. That's where I am naturally. And when we think about sin and we think about danger and we think about temptation, the greatest danger is us. It's ourselves. So when Jesus says, deliver us from evil, that means deliver me from myself. I'm a danger to myself. 
and I need you to save me from myself. Secondly, there are spiritual forces of evil that want to destroy us. This makes some people uncomfortable. They think it's silly superstition. This makes some people super excited and they get ready to call the exorcist. And both of those responses are probably not on point. But there is a reality to be reckoned with that there are spiritual forces of evil that want to destroy us. Let's look at the New Testament verses starting with 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, verse 4. It talks about people who are perishing. People to whom the gospel is veiled. They hear the gospel, they just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. And verse 4 says, in their case, the God of this world... You can draw a line back to chapter 2, verse 11, that talks about Satan. We don't want to be outwitted by Satan. The God of this world is Satan. In their case, unbelievers... The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is like double bad news for us, right? We don't need Satan to come blind us. Our hearts are completely wrecked by sin. Every intention of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. Then just to add insult to injury, Paul says the God of this world, Satan, blinds us in such a way when we're unbelievers so that we don't see The light of the gospel. We don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to us. And the only hope is not that we can wrestle Satan away. It's not that someone can can cast Satan out. The only hope is that the God who spoke light into existence in the beginning can shine the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God into our hearts. But the idea here is we have an enemy and he blinds us. Flip over and look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, another name for Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Some of you have thought about your testimony before. And some of you grew up in church and you never got addicted to crack and you never ran a prostitution ring and you never, you know traffic drugs across the border or did anything really, really bad like that. You're never in a gang. You don't have any crazy down-and-out story. But the reality is you do have a down-and-out story. And Paul says, this is your story. Before you followed Jesus, you followed Satan. Before you were part of the kingdom of Christ, you were part of the kingdom of darkness. That was home to you. You may not lead with that when you share your testimony to people. I used to follow the devil you think, well, I wasn't a Satan worshiper, but Paul says, but that was us. We were just, we're following the only thing we knew. Following our hearts, following the, the course of the world. We'll come back to that in a minute. Following the prince of the power there. We're just following along with what he wants. Ephesians 6, if you flip the page, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And you say, who are those people? It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We wrestle against them. We have spiritual, wicked opponents that want to ruin our lives. That's dangerous. 
It's dangerous. We don't think about that much. As Americans, we don't think about the supernatural very often. We just think, you know, there's life down here, and we can explain it with science, and then there's heaven up there, and there's really not a whole lot in the middle. And the biblical worldview is completely different. There is an unseen realm that is very, very real, and we wrestle against these spiritual forces of evil. 1 Peter 5 is sort of a capstone to what the Lord said to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. Remember that? Look what Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? Our Kenya team, when we send teams over to Kenya, we always try to do some kind of safari. And the closest on any safari I've ever been to, the closest I've been to a lion is about 100 yards away. And that's close enough. When you see a lion out in the wild, it's terrifying. And some of our teams have pictures and videos of lions walking right beside the truck. I promise you those pictures were taken from inside the truck. Door locked, window up, scooted to the middle of the seat, taking a picture, and then posted, look what we saw. You were terrified. And Peter says, that's what Satan's like. He's like a lion on the prowl, and he's looking for dinner, and you'll do just fine. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. He hates your family. He hates your marriage. He hates your kids. He hates your church. He hates your Sunday school class. He hates you, and he wants to destroy you, and he wants the worst for everybody in your life. And when we pray, deliver us from evil, we've got to think about these spiritual forces of evil. It's interesting. Some of you... Your translation does not say evil, it says evil one. And I'll just put the the chart up here that sort of shows you the difference. The King James, the ESV, which I read out of, and the New American Standards say deliver us from evil. The Holman is the CSB, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, the NIV, the New Living, the ASV, the Authorized Version, and the New King James, interesting they updated it from King James to New King James, says evil one. And most Bible scholars are of the opinion that what Jesus is actually teaching us to pray specifically is we have an enemy, the devil, who wants to destroy us. He prowls around like a roaring lion, the evil one. And we're praying that we would be delivered from Satan and from the temptation that he and the demons bring into our lives. So let me share with you a quote. I think I put this on your notes. This is from C.S. Lewis. This was the first quote that I put in my uh, Ph.D. dissertation. And so I think about this quote a lot. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One error is to disbelieve in their existence. The other error is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And they hail a materialist, somebody who says this world is all there is, demons are silly, that's superstition, that's the materialist. They like a materialist or a magician, the guy who's chanting and doing spells and potions and worried about demons and infesting this and all that sort of stuff. They hail either one, a materialist or a magician, with the same delight. And that's from the beginning of Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. And he's giving us an important lesson. He's saying, look, there are spiritual forces that you need to be protected from. There's an enemy, and you need to pray that God, the Father, would deliver you from 
the evil one. That doesn't mean you need to obsess about them. And it doesn't mean you just need to live in constant fear of them. You need to know that they're real. You need to know that they are dangerous. But you also need to know that the one in you is greater than the one who's in the world. And so quickly, look at 1 John. A couple of verses in 1 John that give us a little bit of balance here. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to beat Satan. It's not the only thing he came to do, but it's one of the things he came to do. He came to destroy his work. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we know that they're real. But we don't obsess about them. We don't focus on these spiritual forces of evil. We simply pray that God would deliver us. And we have faith that Jesus can do that. And so we, we think about the, the great hymn by Martin Luther. We sang it just a couple of weeks ago. A mighty fortress is our God. And here's one of the lines from that hymn. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo, undo us. Translation, the world is a dangerous place. And the devils want to destroy you. We know that's true. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. It's not going to be hard for Jesus to beat Satan in the end. Right? You see these stupid little things that people share on social media and Jesus is arm wrestling Satan and they want you to like it or share it or whatever if you think Jesus. Like that, that is blasphemous. Blasphemous. There's no arm wrestling match. One little word. With the breath of his mouth, he'll destroy him. So we pray, knowing they're real, they want to destroy us. The devil prowls around. He wants to, to destroy your home, your family, your church, your Sunday school class. But we have confidence that the one in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Next, let's talk about the world. The world stands in opposition to God and his people. This is where I come back to Kingfisher, Odessa, United States, China. It doesn't matter where you're at. We live in a fallen, busted, broken world. And in the Bible, you read this, this word, world, and it means different things. Sometimes the world is like the dirt and the trees and the oceans and the physical, the mountains, the, the sand hills, the oil fields, and just all the stuff that God has made. Sometimes that's the world. Sometimes the world is all of the people who live on this rock. Like not so much the rock, but the people who live on the rock. Sometimes that's what world means. Sometimes world in the Bible is talking about the fallen world system that we all are born into and we're all a part of and we all contribute to that stands in opposition and in defiance to God. Right? Adam is set up as the, the king over creation. He's given dominion. And when he blows it, the whole thing suffers. The whole thing is fallen. And so I just want you to see some of these 
verses that talk about the world being in opposition to God and his people. Look at Romans 3. Romans 3. It says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul's been talking about Jews and Gentiles and he says, look, everyone and and all of it is just in opposition to God. And in the end, because God's given his law, all of it, this whole opposition is going to be held accountable. Flip over and look at 1 Corinthians 1. Paul paints a contrast between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There's a worldly system of wisdom and there's wisdom from God. One leads to death and the other leads to life. And they're in opposition to each other. Ephesians 2, we read it a minute ago. You can flip over and look at that again quickly. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and you were following the course of the world. You're just going along with the world. The world is running away from God. The world in opposition to God. The world in defiance to God. And in Ephesians 2, Paul brings all these things together, right? He talks about our sins. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's us. He talks about the world, following the course of the world. And then he talks about the spirit of the, the power of the spirit of the air, right? The devil. Our enemy. So you got the world and our flesh and the devil all working together in concert. James 4, we already read. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. This paragraph was my uh, preaching assignment, in, or one of my preaching assignments in seminary when I took preaching class. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world... Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so you see this contrast. There's God's way and there's the world's way. And they're in opposition to each other. Right? And the, the way of the world is passing away. And John says, don't get caught up in that. Like That's a dying way. It leads to death now, and it's, it's going to go away in the end. You need to be concerned with the things of God, not the things of the world. So the world stands in opposition to God and his people, and that's what we're born into. We put all that together, and we say this. The fact that Jesus teaches us to pray these words is a reminder that we need God's help. In temptation. We need his help. And when you say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one, what you're saying is, I can't do this on my own. I'm not capable on my own. I need your help. I need deliverance, divine, heavenly deliverance, if I'm going to make it through temptation. My heart is going to pull me in the wrong direction. The spiritual forces of evil are going to pull me in the wrong direction. This world system that I'm a part of is going to pull me in the wrong direction, and I need help. So we'll end with with this. What is God's role and what's our role? 
What is God's role and what's our role? I just want you to think about this for a second. What is God's role in all this? If we are taught to pray that God would not lead us into temptation. That's what Jesus says, right? Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven those who have debts against us. And lead us not. Don't lead us into temptation. Do we then assume that if we don't pray that, God might actually lead us into temptation? Is that a possibility? That if you don't say the prayer right and mean it, that God is actually going to join your sinful heart and the devil and the world, and he's going to lead you into temptation. And most of you are very nervously saying, that doesn't sound right. I don't think that's how it works. God doesn't, God doesn't lead us into temptation. And my question is this. If God doesn't lead us into temptation, why do we need to pray, don't lead us into temptation? If he's not going to do it, why do we need to pray about it? If it's something that goes against his character and he's not going to do, then why in the world would Jesus say you need to pray about this? And part of my response would be, when you read prayers in the Bible, people pray about all kinds of things that are going to happen, and they pray about them anyways. Is God going to be faithful to his promises? Yes or no? That's the easy Sunday school answer. I put the T-ball on the T. Is God going to be faithful to his promises? Yes. You know how many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people just ask him to keep his promise? Why do you ask him to keep his promise? He's going to, of course he's going to keep his promise. He can't not keep his promise. They ask anyways. That's what we do when we pray. We ask God to do things he already said he's going to do. People in the Old Testament and the New You see it in the book of Acts. Pray, God, I want you to look on my situation. Is he not looking already? Of course he's looking. He sees, he knows, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. And yet they say, I want you to know what's going on here. Well, he already knows. But you pray that God would do something that he's already said he's going to do. And that's one of the things we're doing here. You can think it's silly. You can sort of thumb your nose at it and say, I don't want to pray that. God's not going to do it anyways. Why would I waste my breath? I'll just skip to the last line. I like the last line better anyways. One you, you hardly even let us say on Wednesday nights. That's my favorite. So I'm just going to skip this one. I'm going to put that one in instead. Of course God's not going to lead us into temptation. God does not lead his people into temptation. This is on your notes. But he does test his people. He does not lead us into temptation. He does test his people 100%. We're not going to look at the book of Job. We're going to look at James. So you can flip to James. But before we read in James, I just want you to think about Job. Who was responsible for Job's suffering? Satan or God? Who was responsible? If you read the story, the whole point is that Job wasn't responsible. His friends tried to blame it on him. And he kept saying, I really don't think this has anything to do with me. And he got a little mouthy in the end, but it wasn't Job. You read the first two chapters, and it's certainly clear that Satan 
had intentions in it, right? I mean, he's the one asking for permission. Can I do this? Can I do that? And then he's the one that does it. He causes all the disaster. But you remember the part where Job, early in the book, before he gets real mouthy, early in the book, he says, God has done this. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. He doesn't say the Lord gave it to me and Satan took it away from me. He says the Lord gave it to me and the Lord took it away from me. And the book tells you right after that, Job did not sin with his lips in saying that. Up to that point. In saying that God took it. He didn't sin with his lips. And the answer is, was it Satan or was it God that was responsible for Job's suffering? The answer is, yeah. Satan had a design in it. It was to ruin Job and to make God look pitiful. God had a design in it. And it was to test Job. And to prove that he was sufficient and he was enough. And James explains all this in a really beautiful way. In James chapter 1, look at verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, you can underline the word testing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Does Satan want you to be steadfast? That's God's design, right? He wants you to be steadfast. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Does Satan want you to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Absolutely not. That's God's design. In the test, God tests you. Think about the story of Abraham. He's testing Abraham. He's testing his people through suffering. And he wants them to be perfect and mature and complete and lacking in nothing. He wants them to grow. Jump down and look at James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. Does Satan want to give you a crown of life? Absolutely not. God has promised that to those who love him. Now, look what he says next. He's talking about testing, testing, testing. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Both of these things are reality. When you face some sort of test or some sort of suffering, God has an aim in that, and it's to make you perfect and complete and more and more and more like Jesus. That's God's design. And sometimes in the exact same situation, Satan has an aim in it, right? Your heart, James says, pulls you in the wrong direction in that experience. The world is going to drag you and offer you worldly wisdom that pulls you in the wrong direction in that situation. God doesn't lead his people into temptation. That's our hearts. That's Satan. That's the world. But God does test his people. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, do not lead us into temptation, I think we pray that with this mindset. God is not tempting me. God is not trying to ruin me. God is not trying to destroy me. God is trying to make me more like Jesus. He's trying to make me perfect. He's trying to make me complete. He is testing my faith, but he is not tempting me to sin. That's my heart. That's the spiritual forces of evil that want to destroy me. That's the world 
that's in opposition to God. So God doesn't lead us into temptation. What is our role? Well, number one, we pray for spiritual protection. That's what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 6. Pray about it. Ask God to protect you. Right? There's a humility in all prayer, but especially when you're coming to God asking for help in something. You're saying, God, I can't do it, but I believe you can do it. That's why I'm asking you. I'm asking you for deliverance. So we pray about it. Secondly, we do whatever it takes to battle the temptation. So this is not, well, you know, I prayed about it and it didn't go away. So I guess it's from God. Well, I prayed about it and it didn't get any easier. So I guess I'm just going to go with it. This is first you pray about it and then you do whatever you have to do to run away from it. And Jesus explains this just a few verses earlier in Matthew 5 Verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus knows if you pluck your eye out, that's not going to fix your lust problem. You can lust and not see. But what he's saying is you've got to do whatever it takes. You've got to go to the greatest extreme. You've got to fight it. Like You've got to pretend like sin is crouching at your door because that's the reality. It's crouching at your door. At your door. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, and you have to do whatever it takes to fight it. Paul talks in Romans 8 about killing sin, putting sin to death. So we've got to do whatever it takes to battle temptation. And then last, we encourage each other in obedience. We encourage each other in obedience. Let's look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think this should be a little bit of a change to your mind and my mind when we think about what we're doing here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. We're not just coming for academic exercises. We're not just coming because we like hymns or we like the praise band or your friends are going to be in Sunday school class. We're not just coming because it's expected of us. One of the things we're coming to do is to encourage each other to keep fighting. Right? You do this with one another. You can't do it by yourself. You cannot do Hebrews 10 listening to a podcast at home. If you miss, listen to the podcast. But you can't do Hebrews 10 listening to a podcast. You can't do Hebrews 10 listening to a preacher on TV. Impossible. You have got to be together with God's people to encourage each other, to encourage one another to press on and to keep going. And that's not just Hebrews 10. That's right here in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. We've pointed this out before. Every pronoun in this prayer is plural. It's not my Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me my daily bread. Forgive me my debts. Right? To to say it that way is to change what Jesus is telling us in the prayer. You don't get to just individualize it and live like a monk in your own little spiritual silo. They're all plural. And one of the things we pray is, deliver us from evil. Do not lead 
us into temptation. And Jesus is putting a reminder in there. I haven't left you to fight alone. Yes, I've given you my word. Yes, I've given you the spirit. But I've given you each other. You're in it together. And James talks about, in James 5, he talks about the the one who pulls somebody back from sinning and covers over a multitude of sins. Like, that's your job as, as a church family. For me to do that for you and you to do that for me and us to do it for each other is to say we're in this battle, this dangerous world together. And we lock arms and we walk shoulder to shoulder into the battle knowing we don't, we don't walk alone. We have one in us who's greater than the one who's in the world and we have people side by side with us who are also praying, do not lead my neighbor into temptation. Do not lead the person next to me to temptation. Deliver my, my buddy in Sunday school from evil. And we do this corporately. We do it together.